What is your favorite bird? Let me hear some answers here. A dove. Okay. A hummingbird. An owl. Eagle. Okay, let, let me... Let me explain. Once again, this congregation never fails to amaze me. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was expecting answers like eagles or hawks or something like that uh, and wanted to ask, again, this is your favorite bird, okay? Your favorite bird. Did any of you mention the penguin, the ostrich, the kiwi, or the chicken, or the emu who can barely fly or not fly at all? Any of you mentioned them? You know, the reason why you didn't mention them is probably because you don't always think of them as birds. They don't move around much. Uh, did any of you think of the goose or the duck or the pheasant? Then you're hunters. Okay? And, and you, uh, and you might add the chicken to that, uh, if you're a cow because you go to, uh, uh that chicken restaurant. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> I want to say this, if a bird does not fly, it's hard to consider that a real bird. And my favorite birds are the ones where I can watch them soaring majestically, catching thermal updrafts, and then suddenly diving like a missile to catch their prey. I have seen once or twice a bald eagle swoop down on a lake put its its claws down just in time to catch a trout and walk away, I mean and fly away with it and that i can't i i can't forget that picture it is something beautiful and etched in my memory and i want to say this to you who this morning are christians among us you were recreated in christ to fly into the heavenly places But because that we practice God talk, we need to know that there are many around us who are spiritually ostriches. In other words, they can't imagine a heavenly relationship. They cannot go beyond a materialistic view of life. And so they hear us in our God talk and they think that we're crazy. In the very first sentence of the Bible dictated by Moses... Heaven is assumed because that is where God speaks. That is where he dwells. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you think the heavens are the material heavens, fair enough. But the one who speaks from those heavens is the one who made it all. That means that we live both in a material universe, but also a very spiritual one where God dwells. And the material universe owns its existence to the one in the heavenly one. Humanity, each one of us, is not just a material being, but we are created in God's image and also spiritual. That means we are recreated in Christ to fly into the spiritual places. By the spiritual places, I mean we are also recreated in Christ to go beyond the material life both in this life to have a relationship with God, but also in the life to come with the resurrection body. So today I want to share with you this second passage of the eight that I call foundational. In other words, I read these passages and I get excited. My blood warms. They have meant a lot to me over the years. And this last one that we looked at two weeks ago had to do with who is God. And we understand that God's thoughts and God's ways 
are different than man's ways and man's thoughts. Not only are they different, but God's ways are superior to man's ways and God's thoughts superior to man's ways and, and man's thoughts. That means that his are not just different than the way we think because he lives in heaven and he's perfect in all of his ways, but also it means that we will be discovering or the more we discover about God, the more that our mind will be changing. And so we have to be ready that through the Bible, through uh, life's experiences, through our fellowship with other believers, that we're going to be thinking more and more of God's thoughts and God's ways. And this will be discovering these eight weeks together. We'll be discovering what some of those thoughts and ways are. So today... I want you to consider another thought or another method that is both different and superior because it comes from God. I want you to come and fly with me and get off the spiritual ground or get off the earthly ground to get into the spiritual ground. Now, being in this realm is not without danger and maybe even hurt. But uh, it is several days after Jesus' resurrection. He has shown himself to his followers more than once. And now it comes time for his ascension when he returns to the Father. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels, describe Jesus' last words. Now, they're not always the same. In fact, no two of those last words are the same. But each of them he gives probably at a different point in his resurrection appearances. And each of them, though, deals with the same thing. God is given a vision To his disciples. And this vision to his followers is best recorded in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And I love this passage because I love its humanity. So our passage for this morning that I call foundational to at least me, and I hope it grows and grows with you, is in Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. It says, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. I take comfort in that. For those of you who've ever doubted, have spiritual doubts, I take comfort in that because these people who were doubting wouldn't doubt forever. And, and maybe if they continued to doubt, it didn't stop their progress in following Jesus. So it says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority on earth, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here's his vision. It's a heavenly vision. It is probably very different than most people's vision. And the most important word in here is repeated four times. It's not the word the, it's the word all, though you only see it twice in the English translation. It appears four times in terms of this. All authority is given to Jesus. They are to go and preach to all nations. They are to teach all the things or everything that Jesus has taught them, and he is with them all the days until the end of the age. But the first and most important to understand is that 
all the authority that has ever been given out is given to one person, and his name is Jesus, and he is the one Lord. Remember that in our political climate right now. And only mankind of all of creation is the one that refuses to acknowledge the proper place of Jesus. This Jesus has been given the name above every name. And his, his name is Lord of Lords, both in heaven and on earth. And all of creation recognizes that, just some humans don't. God the Father is giving his full authority, all the authority he can, to his Son. Because his Son earns that authority on his cross, and he displays that authority in his resurrection. Jesus has no equal. So when Jesus speaks, know that his words that you hear from him are true, first of all. That they are powerful and that they will last forever. So these words that he speaks to his 11 disciples are true. They are powerful and they will last forever. We repeat them today. And here is that first sentence. Therefore, he says, this is the vision, the heavenly vision for his disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, when he says this, it's not, you know, it's an instruction. You might say it's a command. It's not given as something that's optional, nor is it multiple choice. He tells his 11 remaining disciples to make disciples. And most of the process of this disciple making is laid out in these three, uh, these three instructions. They're called participles. Uh, for those of you like me who have a very poor English background, okay, uh, participle here means words ending in ing. Okay? I had to look that up too, so it's all right. So the first participle is not go, but it's going. There's an assumption there that you're going to be going. Now, when you are going, he says, uh, that understand this is different. Because maybe you, you believe that, you know, people should be coming to me. Uh, this is saying that we make house calls. We go to them. It is telling me I'm not to sit in my office all week waiting for someone to knock on the door, crawling on their hands and knees and saying, Pastor Jim, oh great one, what must I do to be saved? That hasn't happened in weeks. And it may not happen in the weeks to come. Instead, I find myself going to the places and being with the people who need Jesus because they may not know what God the Father has granted to his Son, all authority in heaven and on earth. So what the disciples are to go and make is other disciples. And if there is any confusion as to what a disciple means, most simply it means uh, people whose faith and lives will be like the 11 disciples that we read. They're not perfect. But these are the 11 who already exist. Let me make a stab at how to define the term disciples. And again, I'm trying to simplify it. I know many of you can do a much better job by making it much longer. A disciple is a lifelong follower of Jesus. A disciple is a lifelong follower of Jesus. Now, many of you have talked to me. And you said you've taken vacations. Yeah. 
but you're back, or you're in the process of coming back. This probably means that there's a beginning. Uh, My beginning was at the age of 17 in 1965. I know other people who have told me, I can't ever think of any conscious memory in my life when I wasn't a follower of Jesus or a believer in Jesus. Uh, I've baptized children as young as four and a half. Uh, They were more afraid of the water than they were of Jesus. My my greatest memory is, is baptizing someone at the age of 92. He got in just in time, okay? Uh, But more than that, you know, it was sort of the end of a process in his life where he says, you know, I've never really made this this public uh, documentation of my faith in Christ. And the change was so evident in his life that his family soon stepped in and intervened and moved him out of that community. Now, at 92, you're not going to stay independently living for too much longer. But they also were sort of afraid of the change that Jesus was making in his life. Well, so um, what are the disciples to do? They're to go and make other disciples. And a disciple is a lifelong follower of Jesus. Now, they called Jesus rabbi. They also called him uh, Lord. But, but the words that we like to use for, you know, what is a follower of Jesus, we call him Savior. And hopefully we are calling him Lord, meaning I am following you no matter what the consequences. I trace my followership back to 1965, where I began to follow before I began to attend church. And I use that term lifelong follower very humbly. I want you to understand I'm an inconsistent follower. I have had seasons when I haven't followed as I should. You say, you're a pastor. Yes. And I'm honest. I have done my job, but I haven't always been the follower that I should. Um, And I hope you take comfort in that, not because what I say about me, but what you are thinking about yourself. Because I know that there are people in this room who are returning after a vacation, after some disappointment in God. I know people who have given up on God but are in the process of returning. And I know people who are giving up on God even right at this moment in this community. The difference is, and here's the big difference, God has never given up on them. And he never will. So... Most believers will have seasons where they are not red hot. It's probably impossible humanly to live that way all of your life. There may be times when you are cold or lukewarm. But most believers who are lifelong followers of Jesus say, you know, this is not the season that I'm stuck in. This season will not last forever. May I ask, what season are you currently in? You can best determine that, what season you are in, by looking at the next two participles, the I-N-G word, because there is evidence to what a disciple is doing. 
it says that Jesus goes on to say in verses 19 and 20, baptizing them. In other words, go make disciples of all nations. He says, you are baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. You are baptizing them and you are teaching them. The evidence is that you are helping people into this process that Jesus has explained. In other words, this is how you make disciples, and as disciple makers, here is how your people, here is how you're helping these people. Now, this is not everything that's involved. It's much wider than that, and we'll take it a little wider this morning, but it's some of it. So, the idea is that we understand baptism as a public testimony of a personal faith. And people make that public testimony of a personal faith as a means to help them follow Jesus. Um, now, again, those who do not fly with us, those who are spiritual ostriches, look at our baptism and they call it weird. It's okay. They always have. For 2,000 years, they always have. And we understand that as someone makes a personal testimony of faith through a baptism, that they are become marked creatures. The, the rest of the community now knows that they are Christ followers. By baptism, you are becoming part of a counterculture through that declaration. The counterculture that says, I am following Jesus. And it opens up people who have been baptized to brand new realms of criticism. Have you ever heard these things? I have. And you call yourself a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Or how about this? You're not better than me just because you're a Christian. Here's my favorite one from a previous church. It was given by a non-believer after his son had just been baptized. Now we expect you to do all your chores better. Dads, do not do that. You want them to, but don't do that. Their faith and their doing of chores may not coincide, may not align for a while. Or ever. But that doesn't stop them following Jesus. Let me say this. If you have uh, come to faith in Jesus while you're here at Bergen Park Church. Or you've returned to the faith in Jesus while you were here at Bergen Park Church. Uh, you do not have to be baptized or be rebaptized. You are saved by faith. And God's grace alone grants you that. God's grace is what gives you your salvation. But may I make a personal appeal? Because Jesus did it, and he tells his disciples to do it, and Jesus himself practiced baptizing others. But my personal appeal is what's holding you back. And my other personal appeal is when you get baptized and you want to become a marked man or a marked woman, why not make a party of it? Why not? Invite your friends. Invite your family. Invite those who are curious. Invite those who are antagonistic. They probably will say no, but at least, you know, you can be flying and they can be ostriches. And, and together they will hear what Jesus means to you and they're a captive audience if they show up. They will understand what your expectation is for following Jesus for the rest of your life, being a lifelong follower. 
The second evidence after we talk about baptizing is that we are teaching people to obey all that Jesus taught. Teaching to obey. That means that with Jesus in our lives, we move out of our normal human responses and begin to resemble how Jesus and his disciples lived. How he lived is how we want him to live in us. Can I share some of the the parts of obeying that have been tough for me? Shutting my mouth at certain times has been tough. What do I mean? Well, for some of you, shutting your mouth during this political season needs to happen. I don't care what party you're from or what party you're going to vote for. What counts more is the glory of Jesus Christ. Okay, shutting my mouth when I'm angry, it really needs to happen. Or I need to say, I'm angry, I better shut up. Okay, and that'll be my last words. Shutting my mouth when I'm competitive, trying to beat somebody out or jump over somebody. Those are times in which I'm learning to shut my mouth. Other times I'm learning to open my mouth. Open my mouth when I would usually be quiet. Open my mouth when uh, people are denigrating Jesus or denigrating the, well, denigrating the church. They probably have reason for that, but uh, not Jesus. I've opened my wallet as a follower of Jesus, as I would never have done before I was a follower of Jesus. I've opened my home as a follower of Jesus, as I never would have before becoming a follower of Jesus. But most of all, I can say I've opened my self-centered heart to the needs of those who enter my life. On October 1st, I'm going to enter my sixth season of reading this book. Some of you have picked it up. I said September 1st, and I was incorrect. I really can't start it till October 1st. That's next Saturday. Same day you can be fishing with us, okay? And and when I open it, understand I've read it, I've underlined it, I've looked up every passage. There's over 300 that I've had to look up. It's the purpose-driven life. It's 40 days of purpose. I know what the first line is because the first time I read it, I was knocked off my chair. I know what it is. But this will be about the sixth time that I'm reading it since I first opened it up in, 19, uh, in 2003. And here it is. And I want you to know, every, I mean, every time I, open, I begin to shake and I salivate because I know it's coming. It's like thinking coffee ice cream. <laughs> I know it's coming. And here it is. It's not about you. First line. Well, if it's not about me, then what is it about? The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. And if you want to know why you are placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. I love that. And each time as I begin it again, I am looking forward to saying and thinking, well, okay, how much of my life is really about me and how much is about God? 
This is what it means to be teaching, to obey all that Jesus taught us. And I want you to understand that this sort of teaching that the disciples are to do for newer disciples is not just by reading a book or attending a class, though that will happen, and we should do, do those things. But I want you to know that every circumstance of your life can involve being a disciple. Every challenge you face, every adversity, even the great moments of your life, they can be turned to acknowledge the one behind it all. Let me give you some questions that have been given to me even in the last months here. My marriage is failing. Can you help? Will you help me because I'm working through a moral failure? How do I help my kids choose friends that are a good influence? Can I overcome this addiction? I just got real bad news from my doctor. What should I do? You know, thanks to uh, Chris Donoff, I've realized that the first thing I need to show is empathy. And she's taught it. So has my wife because she's done it for, for as long as I've known her. But I also try to include vision in these life's circumstances. I try to say things like this. You've just entered a season of your life where if you follow Jesus as his disciples, you will be amazed at the work he's going to do. You will be amazed. may not be easy. It may be among the last things you accomplish in your life. I will always remember the, the words of a pastor that I admired, and I listened to his tapes. You know, this tells you how long ago it was. I listened to his tapes, and he said, For 42 years, I have been teaching you how to live for Christ. It appears that the next season of my life, I'm going to be teaching you how to die in Christ. He had a form of cancer that at that time was inoperable and there was very little chance. And he eventually died. He lasted about three more years. But what a season that he introduced his congregation to. Disciple-making takes place In life, it takes place in the classroom. So here's my question to you. How is Jesus discipling you right now? And who are the disciple makers who are around you? Two weeks ago, I did that, you know, turned my back and tried the game show thing. But I won't do that. Just just think about it. What's your answer? How is Jesus discipling you? right now. Let's move on. Because there was another aspect, and there's even more out there than I will handle today, but another aspect of what it means to be following Jesus as a disciple. 
It says in Mark 3.14 that he appointed the twelve, designating them as apostles, meaning they were to be the ones going, that they might be with him, which is wonderful, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And other translate in the Gospel of Luke, it also says to be healing. So we make disciples by baptizing We make disciples by teaching both in the classroom and in the challenges of life, but we also make disciples by being involved in serving Jesus Christ. He chooses 12 disciples and he sends them out to serve, basically. Preach, drive out demons, and other things are are listed elsewhere. Uh, Those are not the only ways we serve Jesus. That's what they were to do. And the most challenging times for me and the most fruitful times in my life when I'm taken out of my comfort zone and I'm told to go and I'm brought into new realms of Christ following that I didn't think I was equipped to do. Um, leaving soon for Romania or the Deweys who've been going for just under 30 years, dealing with children who are now young adults, coming back from Romania in a week or two is Diane Pulvermiller who's been going since about the year 2000. Uh, Going with my knees knocking was Jim DeMoller for the first time in 2004. I thought I had come into uh, a group of undisciplined, ungrateful savages about the age of 10 to 12. And I was afraid. You know, in, in that first time there, as, as I was wondering, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Uh, oh, I know. Barb went and I ought to go with her. But the second thing was, hmm, Jim, how much theology have they asked you? And the answer was none. They didn't want to know how many angels fit on the head of the pin. They didn't want to know if I had to forgive seven times 70 or seven times seven or 700 times seven. You know, they didn't care about that. They didn't care about the fine points. But what they really cared about is did I care about them? And that's where I'm challenged in life. How do people know I care? If I really have not the right theology, but the right compassion displayed towards them. So, Understand that in disciple-making, and you're growing as a disciple and helping others to become disciple, one of the things he's going to do is throw you in the uncomfortable spots. Now, good news is he leaves you with an assurance. He says, surely I am with you always. That's the fourth all, even to the end of the very age. He is with us always. We may feel like we are alone, but we are never alone. And since we are not at the, age, uh, at the end of this age yet, Jesus is still with us as he promised. So knowing that Jesus is with you, are you allowing him to disciple you now? And to be put in uh, amongst the discipling people and in the discipling situations where your lifelong fellowship will only be uh, stronger. I have a new one that I'm facing that I'll share with you in a few minutes. Uh, It's a brand new season of my life. But I know that as I go through it, he is with, with me and forging me into a better disciple. That's his vision. That's his work. And believe me, I am a real piece of his work. So, this seems to be, and this is why I'm so excited about it, because I like, you know, uh, 
distilling things down to just the bare essence, this seems to be Jesus' main thing, making disciples. So the question is, is it our main thing? Does his heavenly vision excite us? Is it our main thing? There's never been a building or a facility that makes disciples. Jesus does this through his Holy Spirit and through disciple makers. Now let me give you a a confession about being pastor of Bergen Park Church. I don't gravitate towards administration. I don't see how it fits into the heavenly vision. Also, because I hate administration, so understand that I make excuses. Uh, Many people love the study of theology. For me, going to seminary as unprepared as I was was the hardest, which should have been three years, turned out to be five of my life. Luckily, Barb came into it in year year three, so it got a little easier. Um, It was hard work. I had to retrain my brain. Uh, I am your pastor, and I believe that under spiritual gifts, I I am a pastor teacher, so I, I better do it. But what I really do love is teaching and preaching if it leads to your spiritual growth. That means I have to know it's being absorbed. That means it has to be spoken in a way in which you're receiving it and letting it perk up in your life. So in the days ahead, be prepared because, again, every time I look at this, I salivate, I shake, I say, this is why I'm on this planet. I am on this planet to fulfill that heavenly vision that God has for my life to go and make disciples of all nations. That's why I'm here. There are many ways I do that. But let's say that you come to me and you say, Jim, it's really important for Bergen Park Church that we start a car club now. I say, great. Will it make disciples? Why does that matter? Well, because that's important to me. And as many of you know, cars are very unimportant to me. (laughs) Or, you know, we're really thinking of starting a baking club. Great. Will it make disciples? Well, we plan on giving all of this to the needy in our community. Wow, wonderful. It's showing you as disciples how to be giving to those more needy than you. That's wonderful. We, uh, we start next month our involvement in the uh, emergency shelter program. I just want to say this, church. I was so surprised at your willingness, even eagerness to get involved in this. You're helping me be a disciple by your eagerness. Because what we are going to do, and I didn't hear it once from anyone, we're going to bring uh, the homeless from this mountain community to stay overnight when the temperature demands throughout the winter season to stay overnight so they don't freeze outside. And I didn't hear once. I didn't. You might have thought it. I did. What will happen to our new facility? I think it'll be sanctified. I think it'll be more worn, 
but it'll be a better disciple-making facility. There's a church in our community that loves using this phrase. Our job here on earth is to make heaven more crowded through their ministry. I love that phrase. I wish I could have thought of it. I never think of good phrases. I take good phrases from others and I improve on them. And I'm really good at that. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a builder, not an initiator. So I heard that and I said, yes, but we can make that just a bit better. I want people from Bergen Park Church not just to fill heaven, but to enter it with a greeting from God himself saying, well done. In other words, you followed my son consistently, not perfectly, from the time you put your faith in him. Well done. Let's pray. Father, we desire that your vision be our vision. It's a heavenly one. It's a beautiful one. And I want it to take more and more of the controlling place in my life. That if you are really ruling my life as Lord, then your values are absorbed into my life too. I realize this might mean less time for the good things of this life and setting aside more time for the great things of your vision. In the days that you grant us, may we grow as lifelong followers of your son Jesus and surround ourselves with those who share your heavenly vision. If you want that prayer to be yours, if you're going to set your life to have that prayer be yours, would you join me as I close this prayer with just that one word and all God's people said, amen.